0: And as the choir makes their way down this morning, would you find your way to Revelation chapter 3? Revelation chapter 3 this morning, as we continue in a series of studies that we began a couple of weeks ago through seven letters that Jesus told John to record and send out to seven churches that were there in Asia Minor. And as we come to verse 7 of chapter 3, we come to the faithful church at Philadelphia. And uh, this was a faithful church. It was an enduring church. It was a persevering church. And as I was looking and reading through this week, I kept going back in my mind uh, to one of my buddies when I was in college. When I went to Union University doing my bachelor's there, uh, there was a friend of mine named Ahmed. Ahmed was from Sierra Leone. It's in Western Africa. It's in between Guinea and Liberia, if you know that part uh, of the world. And uh, that part of the world is known, is famous for extreme long distance runners. And Ahmed was no different, man. He wasn't just long distance; he was fast. Uh, A lot of times he and I worked that summer in the facilities crew uh, there at Union University and I was pulled onto the oil well road. I'm headed back toward the shop. And uh, as I would turn onto the gravel road that went up to the uh, uh, maintenance facility building there, I would see Ahmed jump over the railing of his apartment and he would race my little truck All the way up to the office and many times he would beat me he he was fast, but he was also an extreme long distance runner And on saturday mornings, he liked to run from union university to downtown milan tennessee and then back And so I went up and looked the other day. How far was it? It's 25 miles from union university to downtown milan and back makes 50 and I asked him one time I asked him several things. I said first of all why 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 would you run 50 miles I mean I you, I you are never you will never find me running 50 miles I say it all the time Gary if you ever see me running it means two things one something really big and ugly is after me and you number two I have run out of ammunition and, uh, but I was asking him about it and he, he he told me he could run from Union University to downtown Milan Tennessee and back in about four hours Do the math on that and I remember asking him one time I said well doesn't it hurt to run that far I mean I run from here at the end of the driveway I mean I've got wind splints in my side my knees start hurting my lungs are burning I mean doesn't it hurt to run like that he said absolutely it does he said but there comes a point in the run where you hit a wall, you go through the wall, and at that point it hurts to stop <laughs> and I, I remember thinking that day, I will never know what that feels like i 'm never going to know what that feels like, but that is the picture that I had all mine of this all week in my mind of this enduring, persevering, faithful church at Philadelphia. Max Lucado put it this way. He said endurance is the quality that enables us to f- face difficulties with courage and to keep pressing forward knowing that God is with us. And so with all that in mind, let's look and see what Jesus wrote to the faithful, enduring, persevering church at Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy he who is true he who has the key of David he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens I know your works see I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar, in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And then like he ends all of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus told John... In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus told John, the beloved disciple, now the elder apostle, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He told John, John, I want you to write down what I want to say to seven different churches. I want you to record it, and then I want you to send the letters out. And we've talked about how the letters would be sent out along the normal postal route of that day, straight north, back over to the east, then down. And we followed the pattern over the last, what, six or seven weeks now. And he's writing here to these seven churches. And I want to remind you several things. First of all, that these were seven literal, actual, local churches, just like Abilene Baptist Church. But there's seven of them, so that tells us that they're whole and complete. So these letters were for all the churches of all the ages. And then one of the things that I failed to kind of hone in on here over the last several weeks is that I also believe that these seven churches represent the ages of the church from the new testament all the way through the end of the age and so he's writing here to these churches and we come today to the church that he writes to the faithful enduring persevering church called philadelphia let me tell you a few things about the church and the area and the city of philadelphia first of all let me give you the designation we know the name philadelphia means the city of brotherly love we know that uh, just from our contacts here in the united states of america the the city of brotherly love and the city here got its name from its king, who, King Attalus II, who was nicknamed Philadelphus because he had such a great love for his brother. And he, and most likely his brother, they founded the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then also the location, it was a border town. It was on the edge of the frontier. There was a, there was a road that led out of the city of Philadelphia into the border, the frontier of Phrygia. And so it was there in the border area that this city of Philadelphia and the church that was there was set to minister. The situation was, this was an area that had lots of earthquakes, tons of volcanic activity. Uh, Strabo, who was an ancient historian, said that the city was full of earthquakes. And that's going to become important because as we learned last week and with Sardis, Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake. The same earthquake decimated the city of Philadelphia, causing all of the inhabitants to have to run and to live in the outer areas. They did not want to be caught there with all the, the, the building materials to fall down upon them. And that's going to kind of come into play later on in this morning's message. And then the population, the population, well, uh, they were frontiers people. These were rough and tough, strong. Strong men and women. They were there on the border. And most of the other people in the empire, like in the city of Ephesus, would have considered them to be uncouth, uncivilized. And yet, they have been given the responsibility to Hellenize the frontier area of Phrygia. They've been given that the, the the responsibility of taking the good news, the gospel of Greece, there into the frontier area. So they did. They tried to bring the Greco-Roman civilization there into Phrygia. It didn't go over very well at all. It failed miserably, of course. And the reason why is because the Phrygians they liked their culture. They didn't want Roman and Greco-Roman culture. They liked their culture just fine. And so this city there in philadelphia made up of these rough tough individuals has now been given an open door by jesus to take the good news of the gospel of jesus christ to that part of the world expanding the kingdom of god and jesus says here in this letter he says i know your works and i would say to you this morning that just like he knew the works of the church at philadelphia he knows the works of the church called abilene and he says i have set before you an open door the word there for open door that phrase is a picture in the bible of opportunity for ministry for missions for evangelism and for service as a matter of fact paul over when he was in ephesus he wrote in first corinthians chapter 16 he's talking about how he was ministering there and teaching and he says there he says there is a great and effective door has opened to me and just like you're going to see here this morning with philadelphia and i have many adversaries and then Jesus even refers to himself right as the door in John chapter 10 and so Jesus is looking at the church at Philadelphia he knows their works he knows the door that is open to them he knows what they're doing and what they're not doing and just the same way he knows the doors that are open to Abilene Baptist Church he knows what we're doing and what we're not doing and he is paying attention and so these letters were important they were true and relevant in that day and they're just as true and just as important and just Is relevant in our day. Let me talk to you about the church at Philadelphia, the faithful, enduring, persevering church this morning. Look there in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. Notice the property that Jesus manifests. The properties that Jesus manifests. So, just like in all the other letters, Jesus is going to identify himself here. He's going to talk a little bit about who he is, the one who is writing. And here in Revelation chapter 3, he begins by referring to himself as the Holy One. He who is holy. What does that mean? Well, it's a statement of purity because the word holy means to be set apart. It means to separate, to be separate. It means to be sinless. He is the holy God. It is a statement of purity. But it's also a statement of deity. Hold your place there in Revelation chapter 3. Go back, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And listen to how the Lord describes himself through the prophet Isaiah. He says, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things who brings out their hosts by number who calls them all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power and so this is a statement of deity Jesus is referring to himself as holy he is pure but he's also God you get over into the New Testament and Christ is there in Mark chapter 1 verse 24 for he's been teaching in the synagogue there's a demon possessed dude that comes up begins to cause all kinds of confusion and in the middle of all that this Demon possessed guy says about Jesus, We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And of course, the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. And so, when he calls himself holy, it is a statement of purity, it is a statement of deity, and then it is also a statement of sovereignty. If you'll turn over and look at Revelation 6, verse 10, the martyrs are under the altar, the tribulation martyrs are under the altar, and they're crying out. And here's what they're crying out How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood? It is a statement of sovereignty. He is the sovereign, holy, set apart God who sees all, knows all, and judges all. He's holy. But then he also says that he's true. He says he is he who is holy and he who is true. Well, what does that mean? Well, it can be used of two different ways. First of all, faithful. It's a word we don't use it that way much today, right? But we used to use the phrase true blue, right? Somebody is true, they're dependable. You can, you can count on them. But then there's the other way, and I think that's the way it's being used here, that he is the genuine one. He, he is the genuine article, the real deal, the real thing. And I love pastoring Abilene because we have so many of my favorite Coca-Cola guys who go to church here. I love that all of our guys that work for Coca-Cola because uh, I I absolutely love, I mean, matter of fact, I just, I could use an IV of Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, Coke Zero now, just every, you have, you don't even want to know how many Coke Zeros I drink a day, all right? And so I love Coca-Cola and uh, I I love that our guys, matter of fact, out in Harlem uh, at our Sprint store there in Harlem, which is kind of like our Walmart for you city folks uh well, i was there the other day and i saw a guy uh, with coca-cola and i learned i've learned to use the, the the language and he's there and i said hey are you coke united he said yeah i said awesome i love it when the pepsi guys leaves their leaves their um, uh, container their, their their cooler empty for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks because it means we get to sell more coca-cola our guys give more it's a good thing right and so a lot of times when i go to a restaurant and they'll say, well, what would you want to drink? And I order different things than most of you, than some of y'all order. That's a whole other sermon. And uh, you caught that? <laughs> and so uh, they'll say, what would you like to drink? And I'll say, well, give me a Diet Coke or a Coke Zero. And, and they'll say something like this sometimes. Well, we, I'm sorry, we don't carry Coca-Cola products. We only carry Pepsi products. And most of the time, I just want to get up and leave at that point right there, just get up and leave. <laughs> but when I don't, I'll say something like this, well if you don't have the real thing (laughs) it's pretty good right and that's what the word means the word true means yes dependable but it also means the real deal the genuine article the real McCoy you say well why is it so important for Jesus to identify himself to this church at Philadelphia as the holy one and the true one. Well, here's why, because as they get out there and they begin to take the good news of the gospel out into the frontier to the Phrygians, and the Phrygians say, well, you know, well, that's your all's religion. We have our own religion. You have your God. We have our God. And you know what? It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Have you ever heard that before? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. They could say, no, ours is the true God. Ours is the holy God he is the one you can depend upon he is the real deal he is holy he is true and then he says he's the one who has the key of David what does that mean well it's a statement of authority it's a statement of power and if you don't understand how having keys is powerful you've never had teenagers I never knew that you could get a teenage girl to do what you want them to do just by threatening to take away a key to a car. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. I never knew that I had that much power. It's a crazy thing. Go clean your room or I will take away your key. Poof. It's an amazing thing. And on the other hand, it's an amazing thing to realize the power that they have. I never forget about a month or so ago, uh, we were at Wednesday night. Lord Kate had driven there. I had not watched her, and I, I was there. And, uh, and after the service, I watched her get in her car while I'm in mine. I watched her get in her car and drive away without me in the car. That is a weird feeling, Right? And so this key is a, it's a picture of authority, it's a picture of power. But then also, it is a picture of opportunity. And I want to explain to you how, how it's a picture of opportunity. To hold your place here in Revelation three, go back, if you will, to Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22, and uh, you can just cast your eyes down there upon the page, you've got a guy down there by the name of Shebna. Shebna is in charge of the palace. Shevna gets too big for his britches he he carves out his own grave in the place where the kings are supposed to have their graves God doesn't like that at all God comes and confronts him and God says this to him basically He said look I'm going to roll you up tightly like a ball and I'm going to throw you out into a great big space Because you know a big fish in a little pond won't be nearly as big when you toss them out into the ocean And then he says, when you are deposed, I'm going to get another guy to take your spot. His his name is going to be Eliakim. And here's what God says about Eliakim. He says in verse 22 of Isaiah 22, the key of the house of David will lay on his shoulder. Huh? How are you going to balance a key on your shoulder? I wish I'd brought my keys in here with me. How are you going to balance a key on a shoulder? Well, you need to understand that these are not the keys like we have. So we have little keys today, and you walk up, and you twist it, and it opens up. No, this was like a board, like a wooden board. And he'd walk around with this board kind of on his shoulder because you would take that board, and you would stick it in the door, and you'd use it to pry open the doors to the palace. And so it was a picture of authority and strength. And he says he's going to have it on his shoulder so everybody can see it. It's a picture of opportunity to open up the door. And then he makes his statement there in Isaiah 22. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. Amen. And you hear that in Revelation chapter 3 again. It's a picture of opportunity. Well, the problem is, Shebna got too big for his britches, so he got deposed then Eliakim God refers to him as a peg stuck in the wall but the peg cracked and everything fell that was hanging on it so he 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 couldn't handle the pressure he wasn't up to the task and so the key key is passed to Jesus you come to Matthew chapter 16 Matthew chapter 16 if you'll listen there Jesus is talking to Peter and Jesus says to Matthew in Matthew 16 verse 19 and I will give you Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven same thing and whatever you bind on earth will, he will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so God, rather the Lord Jesus, takes the key. He gives it to Peter. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches and opens up the doors to the Jews. Then in the house of Cornelius, he does the same thing. Opening up the doors to the Gentiles. People are coming into the kingdom. The door was open then. The door is still open now. It's a door of opportunity. And I would say to you, to you today... That if you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus while the door is open. Because once it's shut, no man can open it. You can't just be saved whenever you want to be saved. You'll be saved when Jesus wants you to be saved, when the Holy Spirit convicts you to be saved, or you'll never be saved. The door was open then, the door is open now. You say, well, what in the world does that mean for us today? Well, it's a door of blessing. It's a door of opportunity. We have walked through the door and are saved. And our responsibility is that we've been blessed to be a blessing. And I would say specifically to Abilene Baptist Church this morning, God has placed before us an amazing open door. And we could talk about the property out at West. That's an amazing thing that God has put for us. But I would say that the door is even bigger than just property out in West Columbia County. The entire world is open to us and that there is a world out there that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like the church of Philadelphia was to take the good news of the gospel into the frontiers to the Phrygians to tell them about Jesus. We have been given a mandate and a commission to take the good news of the gospel to the farthest corners of the world. I was thinking about a friend of mine named Jay. Jay and I went to college together. Jay serves in Myanmar, one of the most dangerous places in the world. And every week he'll talk about how leaders in the churches that he works with there are arrested for sharing the gospel, tortured for their faith in Jesus. They die for the cause of Christ. I reached out to Jay Jay yesterday and I said, Jay, I'm going to talk about you and your ministry and the service tomorrow, and I want to connect with you because I want Abilene Baptist Church to have a part in what you're doing, getting the good news of the gospel to the most dangerous parts of the world. We're going to Mexico this summer. It's not nearly as dangerous. We're going to Montana this summer. That ain't dangerous at all but i'm praying for god to show us what doors are open where we should go and how we should get the good news of the gospel out there to the farthest corners of the world he says there's a door that's open to you and jesus gives the properties that he manifests number two notice the problems that jesus mentions in verse number eight he says i know your works and there's nothing negative are you all still there this morning He has nothing negative to say about this church. One of only two churches that that's true of here in the first and second second and third chapters of Revelation. Now, they're not perfect, but they're blameless. There's nothing negative, though, he says about this church. But they have some problems that they're facing. And, and and, 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 you know, you can learn from examples, right? You can learn either negatively or positively. So my boys are getting geared up for, for football. Jack's already in football practice and heat conditioning training, all those sorts of things. And whether you're playing football or basketball or badminton or whatever, you know, you can learn from examples. Negative, somebody doesn't pull, somebody doesn't carry their load, the coach is going to pull them out, point them out to everybody and say, hey, don't do what he did. He messed up. He didn't do right. Do the opposite. You can learn from a negative example. That's a good way to learn. My favorite way to learn is from a positive example. Look what he did right. Do what he did. Do it that way. And that's really what you have here with the church of Philadelphia. They have done right. They've done, they've done what they're supposed to do. They've held fast even in the midst of the problems that they're facing you say well what problems were they facing well number one there's the weakness that they felt if you'll notice what he says down there he says in verse 8 for you have a little strength it's a small church it's a poor church it's a weak church out there on the edge of the frontier on, on the border with phrygia and they've got this huge task ahead of them to take the good news of the gospel out into the wild lands and they felt overwhelmed they began to ask themselves how are we going to do that and he says i know that you have little strength but i'm with you i'm the holy one i'm the true one you can depend upon And I'm the one who has the key to the door. And then there's the wickedness they felt, or they faced. He says down there, watch this in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That'd be like me saying today, the church of the devil. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lies. So basically you have, like some of the other cities, you have those there who don't like the Christians. They're in the synagogue. They won't let the Christians in the synagogue. They, they persecute them. They make fun of them. They mock them. They cost them their jobs and their livelihoods, and their living, and they're dealing with these, with these Jews who, who, who are basically persecuting them all over the place. And Jesus says, I know what you're facing. You are a small, weak church, and the, the weakness that you feel, but also the wickedness that you face, they're the synagogue of Satan. But watch what he says. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. You're standing for Jesus. You're sharing the gospel. You're living a life that glorifies Jesus in front of your family members and your friends and your classmates and your coworkers, and they mock you. They make fun of you. It costs you that promotion, Bible thumper. What do you do? You hold fast. You stay with the stuff. You share the gospel. You live a life that a Christian should live. And what Jesus says, if you do that, there will come a time when they will come back around and they'll say, I've watched you. And I've seen how you've lived and I've listened to what you've said and I believe you. There's the properties that Jesus manifests. There are the problems that this little church faced and Jesus mentioned. And then lastly, there's the promises Jesus makes. Verses 9 through 13 he makes some promises to this weak church this faithful church this persevering church this this enduring church and my father in the ministry James Merritt said this he says you know when you stand true to God God will come through for you when you stand true to God God will come through to you and Jesus makes basically three promises first of all Is the promise of protection. He says, I'm going to keep you from the tribulation. He said, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to keep you from the great tribulation. Now, maybe you don't believe the way that I do about the end of time. That is perfectly fine. You have every right to be wrong. But as I study my Bible, the very next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. There's nothing preventing Jesus from coming back and calling us up right now. When that happens, there are going to be seven years of great tribulation. Jesus talked about that in Matthew. While the world is all hell's breaking loose upon this world, we're up in heaven enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the seven years of great tribulation battle of armageddon jesus comes back the, feces, the feces of the antichrist you have the beginning of the thousand or millennial reign of christ here upon this earth at the end of that new heaven and new earth and what he's saying is you hold fast you stay by the stuff you remain faithful and i'm going to keep you from the great tribulation Amen. Amen. it's a promise of protection but then number two there's a promise of purpose and he makes this weird statement did you catch what he said he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Yes. Yes. You ever read that before and thought, what in the world does that mean? I don't have time to go into too much detail, but if you go back, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 18, David, a picture of Jesus, goes down and defeats a pagan king named Hadadezer king of Zobah say that five times real fast Hadadezer is a picture of the devil and David goes in and David redeems all there's golden shields and then there's these brass articles out of those pagan temples He takes the brass articles back. You get over to 1 Kings chapter 7, you've got a guy named Hiram. Hiram takes all that brass, which is a, by the way, brass is a picture of humanity. He takes all that brass and he forms them into these massive brass bronze columns. And you can read about how ornate they were with pomegranates and lattice. They're huge and and they're massive. You've got two of them that are placed into the temple. One on the right side, one on the left. The right one is named Jakin, which means God is my foundation. The left one's called Boaz, which means God is my strength. You'd have these brass, bronze, gleaming pillars placed into the temple of God. They're, they're, they're not bearing any weight because at the top of the pillar, there's a spot about this wide between the top of the pillar and the bottom of the roof. They're bearing no weight, no burden at all. They're just there to bring glory to God. Y'all didn't catch that. They've been redeemed. We've been redeemed from Satan, from hell. The Holy Spirit is forming and fashioning us into pillars that bear no burden at all. We're just there to bring glory to God. And that's what he says. And then the third promise is a promise of position, given a new name. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Jesus writes on them. And the first thing he says here, we're going to write on him, he says, I'm, I'm going to write on you the name of my God. That means ownership. means ownership you belong to god and then he says i'm going to write on you the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my god that's your destination that's where you're headed this afternoon i'm going to hop on a plane i'm going to fly to new orleans for the southern baptist convention we're going to go down there and fight for a week that's what we as southern baptists do i'll try not to get arrested i make that my pledge And when I go down to the airport this afternoon, they're going to put a sticker on my bag because I've got a humongous bag because I pack like a girl. And you um, <laughs> never know what you're going to need to wear, right? Most of the guys don't even think about it. It's just, don't worry about it. And they're going to take a sticker that says New Orleans and going to stick it on my bag because that's where we're headed. And Jesus says, he's going to put on us the name of his God, that's ownership. He's going to put on us the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem, that's destination. And then he says, I'm going to put on you my new name. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, you've got to remember. Earthquake hit Philadelphia, destroyed it. They went into the surrounding area afraid to come back in. Caesar forgave them all that they owed and helped them rebuild that city. And they changed the name of Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea because they now have a new relationship with him. And Jesus puts his new name on these faithful Christians to say we have a new relationship. And then he closes the letter like he does all the others. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, maybe you're a parent or a grandparent of one of these that's been baptized today and you've been going to church all your life, but you've never been saved. Today, if you would surrender your life to Jesus... The name of God would be put upon you because you, you, He owns you. You belong to Him. And the name of heaven will be put upon you because that's your destination. And Jesus is no longer your judge. Now He's your Savior. You have a new relationship with Him. And you could do that before you stand up and sing the very first word of the very first song.